All right. We're in Matthew 5. So, three years with Jesus. We're on a mini-series called The Teachings of Jesus. Uh, And last week we looked at verses 13 through 16, salt and light. So Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with what are called the Beatitudes uh, that lead into what it looks like to be salt and light in Jesus' world and in our world today. Uh, The text we're going to look at today begins in verse 33, so we're skipping several verses. And... uh, Verse 33 comes in the midst of uh, a pattern of teachings in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. So, uh, next slide. Uh, Jesus over and over and over again says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And what Jesus is doing, it's the ongoing evolution of the interpretation of the Jewish law that rabbis would argue and argue and argue over how to interpret the Jewish law. And so Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is taking part in that ongoing, evolving interpretation of the Jewish law. So he says, you have heard that it was said, do not kill. But I say to you, if you're angry with someone, you've basically killed them in your heart. Uh, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at someone lustfully, You've committed adultery in your heart. Uh, You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And so Jesus is pushing people forward. He's saying, hey, this is what you've heard. This is the law as it was said, but I'm moving you even further. I'm moving you into a way of living where God has been inviting us over the ages to become more and more fully human. And Jesus says, Jewish law, it's good. I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to show you an even better way, this way of kingdom living. And so this is one of those, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you teachings, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, verse 33, to the people long ago, do not break your oaths, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, Do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. And so uh, in the midst of all these debates, all these you have heard that it was said things, whether it's about murder or adultery or divorce or oaths or revenge or love, those are the six that Jesus uh, hits on in the Sermon on the Mount. All of them had raging debates going on around them in Jesus' day around how you interpret them and what was meant. And so one of the debates had to do with, well, of course, uh, we're not to swear by God because uh, most rabbis would say that's breaking the second commandment, using God's name in a vain way. And so you can't swear by God, interestingly enough, in our culture, how trite is that phrase for us? I swear to God. I swear to God it's true. Uh, and so, um, but in Jesus' day, especially in the Jewish context, you would never swear to God. And so the debate raged, what could you swear by? Uh, things God created, like heaven, or earth, or Jerusalem, or even your own head. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, none of those things. Like, what? No. 
You don't need to swear by anything. Here's the conclusion of the matter for Jesus. He says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you shouldn't have to swear by anything. Just be honest. If you say yes, mean yes. If you say no, mean no. Like, live with integrity. Be a truth teller. And so Jesus is pushing people forward and saying, hey, you were created in the image of God. And a part of what it means to be in the image of God is God is a relational God. And relationships are built on trust. And if you break trust, you break relationship. Part of what it means to be in the image of God is to be able to trust and to tell the truth, speak the truth in love, and live with integrity and honesty. And Jesus is saying that that's all. Don't swear by it, just yes or no. Just tell the truth. Uh, and so as I was studying this text <clears throat> this past week, I kept thinking of uh, a few good men. Uh, so next slide. You know, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Uh, and I'm thinking, oh, I got to find that clip because maybe I'll show it. And then I watched it. I was like, oh, that's not helpful at all. Uh, but... Um, you know, YouTube these days, every clip you pull up, you have to watch an ad first. And I'm always relieved when I see the ribbon that says you can skip this ad in five, four, three, and I'm like, the cursor's on it. Like, and so when I pulled up this uh, Few Good Men clip, the ad was the trailer to the movie I, Tanya, uh, this movie about the figure skater, Tanya Harding. And I was so grateful to see you can skip this ad in five, and I'm like ready to click on it, and this is the first, it's Tanya Harding's uh, voice in the trailer, and this is the first thing she says. The haters always say, Tanya, tell the truth. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone has their own truth. And I was like, wow, that's even better than the Tom Cruise thing. Uh, isn't this interesting? There's no such thing as truth. Everyone has their own truth. Uh, so I, uh, I wonder, um, are we living in a post-truth world? And as I was thinking about this, it just got my, my head spinning, so I start doing more and more research. Uh, check this out. Uh, Oxford Dictionary has selected post-truth as 2016 international word of the year after the contentious Brexit referendum and an equally divisive U.S. presidential election caused usage of the adjective to skyrocket, according to the Oxford University Press. Amy Wang wrote that in Washington Post. Word of the year, 2016, post-truth. Uh, are we living in a post-truth world? Um, let's go to the next slide. So uh, doing more research, I discovered that Barna has uh, done this study Oh, I missed one. Okay, so this, I don't want to skip this because uh, um, there are a bunch, of, I discovered a bunch of books have been written in the last uh, year, year and a half with the word post-truth in the title. And one of them was written by this guy, 
um, Evan Davis and John Lloyd reviewing it in the Financial Times. One of the things Evan Davis said is like everywhere you look, there, there's untruth or lies everywhere you look. And so he says, in the empty assertions of banks, PR messages, in the overcomplexity of academic economists, even in wine reviews where words such as structured and personality cover the impossibility of conveying complex tastes. Uh, and so he's looking all over all aspects of society and he's saying it's everywhere. The fact that we live in a post-truth world. Uh, Barna did a study called The Trends Shaping a Post-Truth Era. And so they uh, did a sampling, and granted this is a study that they only did in the United States, so uh, obviously there'd be a whole lot of perspectives uh, globally, but the study they did in the United States, one of the questions they asked, you can almost see this, uh, how do you verify news that you see or read about on social media? Uh, and I can't even read the little things under it, so I'm not gonna do that. But it was a fascinating thing to look at how people choose to verify or not verify at all uh, news that they find on social media. Next slide. Uh, they said this, in the 2016 election, groups already compelled to vote for President Trump brushed off many of the negative stories about him, yet were enraged by headlines about Hillary Clinton and vice versa. Barna is a nonpartisan group, so they're, they're just taking facts and research and study, and if people were compelled to vote for one candidate, if there was negative news stories about them, they're just like, eh. But for the other candidate, it was like, ah! Uh, and, and so this is, by and large, a culture we live in. We, we define truth by how we're feeling about truth. Um, next slide. One third of Americans say they trust nobody, only their own instincts when consuming news. Uh, that stat doesn't surprise me. Um, what I think uh, is behind that, though, that isn't researched enough is broken trust. Uh, and fear of broken trust happening again. We live in a world where when we have been hurt, when trust has been broken, it's very hard to rebuild trust. And what's not researched enough is what's behind the fact that we don't trust anybody. And it's because we've been deeply, deeply hurt. And so we don't want to be hurt again, and so we just simply choose not to trust. And so we don't trust anyone. Is moral truth absolute or relative? Barna found that 35% of people said there is absolute moral truth. 44% said all moral truth is relative. And 21% hasn't even thought about it. How is that possible? Uh, so 21% of the population just hasn't even thought about whether moral truth is absolute or not. So um, this got me thinking, and I'm going to, like I think probably every time I get up, you just whether I tell a story from my own life or not, my story's coming through, right? Because my truth is my truth, and uh, my experience is my experience, my story's my story, and it's gonna come out in the way we are with people, just like your story is gonna affect the way you interact with yourself and with the world around you. And so, uh, for me, um, in my undergraduate studies, I loved school. 
And so I just couldn't decide what to major in, so I ended up with a literature major, a religion major, and I was this close to a biology minor until I just realized I'm pretty decent at liberal arts and I suck at the sciences. So uh, I'll just stick with liberal arts. And so in my religion major, uh, I'm studying uh, world religions, but particularly my area of focus was Christianity, and most specifically, biblical theology. And so even though the language uh, from my professors in my undergraduate studies, they didn't talk about the Bible as story. They didn't talk about it as a meta-narrative. But that's what it is. It's this massive meta-narrative. Every religion has a meta-narrative, a guiding narrative by which they live their lives. And so in my religion major, I'm studying this meta-narrative that is declared to be absolute truth. And then in my literature major, I'm studying all these poets, novelists, the great books, the great writers. Um, I'm studying Keats. I love uh, William Blake. If the doors of perception were cleansed, all things would be seen as they truly are, infinite. Which led me to Aldous Huxley, who wrote about the doors of perception, which made me a Doors fan, uh, which, um, I mean, how powerful is that? You bring one of the most powerful art forms, poetry, combined with one of the most powerful art forms, music, and you put them together, and how you, you're, you must be dead if you're not moved by great music with great lyrics. Uh, but I'm off topic. Where am I going? <laughs> how did the doors enter a sermon? Um, oh. So... In my literary criticism classes, we start reading uh, the deconstructionists and the postmodern, Derrida, Foucault, uh, Leotard, and uh, these guys aren't even being talked about in the religion major, and not even being talked about in a lot of the philosophy classes. It hit the literature world first, because they're deconstructing everything, every text, and they're saying, of course there's no absolute truth, and every meta-narrative is suspect. You can't trust any meta-narrative because it will only oppress and only hold it over people. And so truth is only contextual. You have your own truth and you might have a, a guiding truth that your family might go by or that your society might, might go by, but there's no global truth, there's no absolute truth. It's all suspect and it's dangerous and oppressive. Uh, and what many, and I, I, I find it fascinating, uh, what many uh, people started doing, and um, one of my favorite philosophers, Ken Wilber, the way he looks at this is he, he's saying um, he thinks it's misguided to look at these cultural shifts in terms of these big chunks of there was modernity and now we're in this emerging thing called post-modernity, whatever that may end up being. Uh, he's, he uh, uses his philosophical precepts and combines them with all kinds of other schools of thought. And so he takes a very integral approach. He uh, brings in spirituality. He's not a Christian, but he's a deeply spiritual individual. He brings in psychology, specifically uh, human developmental psychology. And he says what we need to look at is what's going on in human consciousness and the way consciousness is moving. Uh, the terminology he uses is spiral dynamics. Um, but he says you must take an integrated approach 
You can't just sit in your philosophy silo. You can't just sit in your spirituality silo. You can't just sit in your psychology silo. You can't just sit in your sciences silo. You've got to bring them all together and observe what's happening in the world. And his critique uh, of postmodernity is that while they're critiquing metanarratives and absolute truth, what they've done in turn is define their own absolute truth and their own metanarrative, which, en which ends up being oppressive and ends up being unhelpful. Uh, and so, wh why am I telling you all this? First, because I find it fascinating, and it's what I ended up studying this week. Uh, and secondly, this. If Jesus teaches us to tell the truth, but there is only your truth and my truth, then there can be no trust. And where there is no trust, there is no relationship. Relationships are built on love and trust. Uh, I'm all for diversity of opinion. You all know that. Uh, I'm, this room alone contains so much difference of opinion and thought. I celebrate that. But I also celebrate that there has to be some truth, some grounding narrative to our lives. Uh, if we do not hold to some moral truth, then th th something's deeply wrong. Uh, Grew up in Michigan. My wife grew up uh, just outside of Lansing, right down the street from Michigan State University, where finally Larry Nasser is in a court of law. This man abused girls and women for 20 years. And MSU was told about it. The Olympic Committee was told about it. And they ignored it because of the prestige of Larry Nasser. He sexually abused girls and women for 20 years. If there's no absolute moral truth that says that's wrong, then something is deeply wrong with our society. There has to be something we hold to that says that is not okay. Abuse of power is not okay. Um, Next slide. Oh, that's a whole other teaching. Next slide. Um, trust once broken can be nearly impossible to gain back. I think there has to be room for reconciliation uh, and hope of reconciliation, clearly in situations of, of sexual abuse, physical abuse, these types of things. Re reconciliation is... Uh, probably not the healthy way forward. Um, trust. We must be people. Jesus invites us in a world where it's just assumed that you're probably being deceived or lied to. Jesus invites us to look different. To be a people who are a part of his movement of regaining shalom. Of bringing hope and healing back to the world. Living this kingdom life. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, yeah, I think there's all kinds of different opinions on how to interpret the text, uh, but like I, I said a couple of weeks ago, if you really want to know what Jesus is all about, it's these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. These are his teachings. He says, if you hold to my teachings, you'll know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. So uh, what is truth? What is truth? Pilate asked this question. Uh, what is truth? Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Jesus said, and Pilate responded, what is truth? Um, I think it's a question we will wrestle with forever. Uh, but one thing I trust is Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, so truth, according to Jesus, is not so much concepts or theology or doctrine or dogma or even a sacred text as much as it is a person, and that person is Jesus. Truth is a person, and it's Jesus. And I believe with all my heart we can trust him, that he is on our side, he is for us, not against us. He is with us, he is present to us, no matter what we're going through, whatever hardship, heartache, no matter what we've done, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He's for us. He's truth. He's love. He's present to us. Um, the author Frederick Beekner wrote a book called Telling the Truth. Uh, it's primarily written for pastors, um, so you can read it and see if I live up to it. Uh, Frederick Buechner is one of the most amazing uh, spiritual writers of our time, uh, and he was an amazing pastor and teacher. And uh, he said this. Uh, he's writing about the text about Pilate, and when Pilate says, what is truth? And Buechner says, before it is word, the gospel that is truth is silence. Because when Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Jesus remained silent. It's a pregnant silence in its ninth month, and in answer to Pilate's question, Jesus keeps silent. What Jesus lets his silence say is that truth is what words can't tell, but only tell about, what images can only point to. And then uh, Buechner moves on to talk about how the prophets, the truth tellers, uh, usually always wrote in poetry. Uh, and then he said this. Uh, truth itself cannot finally be understood, but only experienced. It is the experience that they stun us with, speaking it out in poetry which transcends all other language and its power to open the doors of the heart. The man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, the one with the cauliflower ear and the split lip, by whose swollen eye and ruptured spleen we are somehow healed. Who can put a word to him and who needs to? Uh, now remember, Buechner's writing to pastors, and so he goes on to say that not many pastors are brave enough to just be silent. <laughs> and he says, and why should they? Their calling is to teach and preach. But Buechner's point is, uh, before it's a word, the gospel, the truth, is silence. It's the silent Jesus standing before Pilate, who is truth. It's the silent Jesus on the cross, who is truth. And says very little from the cross, but one of the things he does say is, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. 
truth on a cross. Nailed to a cross by the religious elite and by the Roman elite. And Jesus says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know truth when they see it. Uh, It's this same Jesus who on the very night he was betrayed took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning, I I wonder, as we come and take the bread and dip it in the cup, uh, can I go back to that uh, last slide? Uh, Truth itself cannot finally be understood, but only experienced. Uh, I I wonder this morning, there's a reason we do this thing called communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Uh, It's uh, not just rote. It's not just uh, um, a liturgical rhythm that we just repeat every week because it's what you're supposed to do. It's an experience. It's a tactile experience. It's an experience of remembrance. It's a, it's a communal experience. It's a physical experience. Uh, it's something we do to remember that Jesus died for us and that he rose again. And, and when we partake, somehow, mysteriously, mystically, we experience Christ and his presence in our midst. And so this morning, maybe we can just leave this slide up. Maybe this morning uh, we think about the experience of truth in Jesus. And we think about who can put a word to him and who needs to. Uh, What does it look like for you this morning to experience the power of the crucified and risen Christ who is truth in your life, who is present to you wherever you find yourself. God, we thank you. Thank you that you are truth. And God, as we wrestle with our own beliefs and where we stand on things, God, may we uh, be taken a bit deeper and experience you in the silence experience you in the day-to-day, what seems mundane. May we know that you are present, and you are truth, and you are love, and you are hope. And allow us to rest in that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.